2 Timothy is our text tonight, if you'll turn there. Chapter 1, we're going to read verses 3 through 7, although there's more to it than that. 2 Timothy 1, 3, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Second use of the word remember. I remember your tears. I long to see you that you may be filled with joy. Third use, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you also. Fourth time, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God, our text, main verse, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, that is the word cowardice, not the normal word phobia for fear. This is a different Greek word meaning cowardice. But, in strong contrast, but of power and of love and self-control. The Webster's Dictionary says the definition of coward is a person who lacks the courage to do or endure dangerous or unpleasant things. Secondary uh, definition, excessively afraid of danger or pain. Example, in the definition it says, an animal with its tail between its legs. (laughs) Have you ever felt like that sometimes? Um, I think of, when I think of coward, literally when I first started writing this message, the first thing that popped in my head, for whatever you think, good or bad, was the cowardly lion in the Wizard of Oz. I love that show, and I love that character, um, Dorothy, the Scarecrow, the Ten Men are on their way to see the wizard down the yellow brick road. And out of the forest, the cowardly lion, they didn't know him as that yet, jumps out and he scares them. He acts all ferocious until he tries to bite or get near Toto. And Dorothy gives him a whack on the schnoz there. And he starts crying like a little baby. And she almost is angered by that and says, you're not, you're just a cowardly lion. And of course, he agrees, that's all I am I've ever been. <laughs> so, you know, basically, isn't cowardly lion an oxymoron? Isn't it? I mean, lion and cowardly don't usually, ferocious, um, untamable, uh, king of the beast, whatever, you go, that goes with lion. Cowardly, not usually. Um, so they invite him to go with them to the Wizard of Oz down the Yellowbrick Road. They get captured, and they're outside trying to rescue Dorothy outside the, witch, the Wicked Witch's castle. And then he has this speech with the Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion's talking to the Tin Man and the Scarecrow. And he says, and I quote, All right, I'll go in there for Dorothy. Wicked Witch or no Wicked Witch. Guards or no guards. And you think by now maybe he's overcoming it. I'll tear them apart. I may not even come out alive, he says. But there's one thing I want you to do for me, fellows, first. And they say, what is that? Please talk me out of it. He's still a coward because that's who he is. That's his nature. Um, Let me give you another oxymoron. Cowardly Christian. See, those two things don't go together. Christians should be bold and determined and have conviction Um, but cowardly Christian really doesn't go together. We follow the Lion of Judah, if I could be funny for a little bit there, don't we? I mean, and he is by no stretch a coward. And we've already answered the question tonight, have you ever been a coward? So if you're thinking tonight, I don't really deal with this too much, 
you'd be wrong because in little ways and big ways, uh, we face this problem all the time. Um, we have all been cowards. In fact, you don't have to go through pages of Scripture often to see just how many people who we think are great Christians, and they were great men and women of faith who had to struggle with this. Peter uh, was a coward three times on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He denied the Lord. One of them was to a little girl, a servant girl. And so he, he was not the great man of boldness who proclaimed, I'll go to prison and to death with you. And actually, when it came time to it, he denied Christ. He was a coward that night. He also was a coward later after the resurrection. He said, well, now he's got it all straight. He really loves God. But he was a coward because God showed him he should eat with Gentiles and not call things unclean that God had not called unclean anymore. And he agreed. And for a while he did it until James sent people from Jerusalem. And when they came there and saw Peter eating with them, he backed off and stopped doing it to the point where Paul had to, Galatians 1 says, confront him to his face. And again, so acceptance of people, that was one of our motivations we mentioned. That caused him to be a coward. Um, nobody for 40 days, nobody out of hundreds of men wanted to face Goliath. I mean, he was way too big. His weaponry was bigger than most of the people he would have to fight. Nobody wanted to even attempt it. And then until little scrawny young David comes along and he shows people that you don't have to be a coward. And doesn't matter how big the giant is, when you have God on your side. So again, Saul, who was head and shoulders, the Bible says, bigger than everybody else, was a coward as well for well over a month. Only David showed to be different. Um, and, and we could go on and on. Uh, Ten spies out of 12 were afraid to face the giants and go into the promised land. Abraham was so afraid for his own life that he told uh, that the, his wife was actually his sister to save his own neck. Um, and we could, Gideon was hiding out in a wine press. And I mean, again, on and on the stories go throughout Scripture about how many great men and women of Scripture and faith struggled with this. We all have struggled with it, some more than others, when we should have witnessed and we didn't. We didn't say things um, that should have been said in a controversial uh, religious conversation. We faced impossible situations and we didn't pray or we gave up or we doubted and we really didn't trust God in that situation because it seemed impossible and we, we, were, we were cowards in the sense that we didn't want to face it with the kind of faith that God wanted us to. And I've come to the conclusion that yellow is not only the color of the uh, brick road leading to Oz, but it's also the color of a lot of Christians uh, when it comes to standing up for Jesus and what is true. And I bring that to our attention tonight because I think the best time to talk about it is before you actually need it in, a, in an important way. As I mentioned tonight already, I do not know, and neither do you, about what is going to happen with our religious freedoms in this country. I don't know where we're headed. I don't know how long we'll be able to have these freedoms of speech and act and worship and religion. I don't know. But I can tell you this. If it hasn't happened already, there's coming a time where you deciding on whether you'll be courageous and whether you'll be a coward will be a major issue and perhaps a regular one and will become far more common than perhaps it even is now. And let me tell you this, things haven't changed first to 21st century. At the end of this book, you can turn there if you want to, but Paul says that he's going to have a trial. He calls it in the Greek his first apology. That was a defense of his life and his ministry before Roman courts. And so he says that before, in chapter 4, he says in verse 10, For Demas has deserted me having loved this present world. Demas was a very close confidant and partner in the ministry of the gospel with Paul, but he deserted him. And it says, 
and I'm not sure all that this means, Cretans went to Thessalonica, I believe, Titus to Dalmatia. In other words, Titus, I don't know if that means he's just like Demas, and Cretans were too, but they were gone. They had left Paul. And, and there's no reason, we're going to get into a minute, but Paul was in prison. He was in chains to associate with someone who was a, and he said, this is what he says of himself, that they branded him a criminal. And so when you associate with someone socially, that is a dishonor because to have be put in jail was a great dishonor in a honor-shame culture. And not only on top of that, but it was a great risk to your life because now you're associating with someone who is in prison. And if you are associating with them, maybe you believe the same way and you're putting yourself in jeopardy. So there were a lot of ramifications. And so these guys, seemingly as cowards, they didn't want to be around for that. In fact, so much so that a few verses later, Paul makes a general sweeping statement in 2 Timothy 4.16. He says that my first apology, listen to this, no one came to stand by me. All my friends and people that were around when it came by to going to court with me, none of them did. Zero. And that even includes in the text, he says only Luke is with me now. I don't know if Luke uh, got away from Paul for a while either and came back. I don't know because it doesn't say that kind of detail, but I don't even know. Maybe Luke didn't even stand with him at that point. Maybe he came back and got right. I don't know, but here's what I know, that none of the people that were there stood with him. It says, they all deserted me. That's the same word used of Demas in verse 10. They left him in the lurch. They left him hanging because if to do what he wanted them to do would put their own lives at risk and they were afraid. That's our series, Manage Your Emotions. Tonight's Emotion we're going to talk about is fear. And one of its biggest expressions is being a coward. Matt Walsh has written a book um, called Church of Cowards. It's a strong book. It's straight at you kind of book. Um, you won't agree with everything in it, but he has a lot of good things to say. In the book, he tells the story of Egyptian Christians who were on a tour in, in, in the Middle East, and they were traveling through a desert road to reach their destination. They got pulled over, not pulled over in a nice way, but made to pull over by a radical Islamic terrorist group. All the people that were on the touring bus were made to get off, including men, women, and children, and they stood out in the uh, desert road, and they were asked two questions. One, will you renounce your uh, faith in Christ? And number two, in doing so, will you convert to Islam? There were over 60 people on the bus, including women, men, and children. Every single one of them were shot in the head. But they were asked two questions. Now imagine this. It's not bad enough they had to be asked once. But two times you had a chance to save your own life. And all you had to do is say one little syllable, no. That's all you had to say. And you, but here's the thing. You had to say it two times. So you know what that means? Even when the children were asked, no, no, and your life is over. And they knew it, but every single one of them did that. Now listen to Matt Walsh, what he says. All of them were shot in the head or in the throat. How many of us, he writes, have faith like that? How many of us are willing to give up anything for Jesus, let alone everything Listen to his statement. It's probably extreme, but he believes it. Listen to this. I do not believe that I exaggerate when I say that the average American Christian has never given up one single thing for Christ. So give up our lives? 
Not a chance, he says. There's really no need to put a gun to our heads unless that gun is put up to our TV, our smartphones, or our video games. That's his view. Says, would we give up our life for Christ like that? He goes, hardly, because we can't even give up anything far less. See, two questions. How would we have answered? And the way that you answer that question, if that day ever comes to you, is the way that you answer it today and every day of your life in smaller matters up until then. And that's why we answered, asked the questions about when you have opportunities to witness and you don't, and you have circumstances that God has put you in that you should trust and you don't. See? How important is this? Well, look what the Bible says. For God, verse 7, chapter 1, 2 Timothy, for God has given us a spirit not of fear, not of fear. It's the word I said before, to be a coward. Now hold your finger here, and I'm going to answer a couple of our questions, and same time, probably blow your mind a little bit. Revelation chapter 21 is the revelation of the new heaven and new earth, and it's going to be the final place for all true believers. Those who are not believers, it also mentions the, true, the final place that they will end up going for eternity, and that is the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. We call it the lake of fire. Now, what's interesting in this text, and I'm going to contrast it, so stay with me here. It says in verse 5 of chapter 21, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done, or finished, like Jesus said on the cross. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Now watch, ready? This is basically a noun description of, this is a title. This is something that marks the person. There is this kind of person, the one who conquers. It's the word Nike, we get Nike tennis shoes from. It's the word often translated in English versions as victory, okay? The one who lives the victorious life, not occasionally finding victory, but this is what marks them, remember? The one who is the conqueror will have his heritage, have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But, in a very strong contrast, so here's the contrast, let me get it first. People who are conquerors. Now, it's interesting. Eight times the word conquer is used in Revelation, and you know seven out of the eight of them probably right off the top of your head because it's the definition or description of the Christian who is truly a believer in every single church. All seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 have at the end of the description, and the one who is the conqueror, and it, it gives them some reward, and every church has a different reward. But the one, what universally is characteristic of true Christians in every single church is this one truth and fact. They are conquerors. They are people who live out by faith the victory of Jesus. It is what marks them, okay? And, and, and now watch. In that second chapter, 2 and verse 7, the church at Ephesus, I believe it is, here's what the victor or the conqueror will get. The reward is they will not be hurt by the second death. That's the eternal death, as our passage in 21.8 says, it's the lake of fire. So here's what you get. If you are truly a conqueror, and by faith you live out the victory of Jesus, one of the reward is you will not be hurt by the second death. In other words, you won't go to the lake of fire. Instead, you'll be with God for eternity. Now watch. 
In contrast to people who are conquerors, you have people, and I'm not saying this to be funny, who are losers, people who are not living in victory, no matter what you might think of them. And what marks the loser's life, which sends them to the lake of fire, the first thing on a list of horrendously awful sins in verse 8, if you look there, is, but as for the cowardly, it's the same word used in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Cowardly, people who run when the enemy comes, people who do not stand up for truth, and when danger arises, they are gone. That's who it is. That's who it's, stand, that's who it's about. So here's what he says. The cowardly, and now notice, the faithless, detestable, for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. I took my five from this list. And heading up this list of people who are going to the lake of fire are cowards. So how serious is our Bible study? Eternally serious. Because people who practice being a coward, that's what marks them, will end up in the lake of fire. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So heaven is not for cowards. Hell is. Christians are courageous conquerors, not cowards. So let me ask the question, and then I'm going to answer it. Why is that true? Why is that one of the marks? Notice back in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Turn back there, and I want to give you a contrast. In chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he's going to say there are two spirits that, you, that are out there. One has been given to you by God and one has not. Verse 6 says, of 2 Timothy, if you'll turn back there. Let me show you what I mean. Chapter 1, verse 6 says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame. That's one word in the Greek and it literally means to rekindle. Literally it's a compound word, fire again with the little prefix in the front. Fire again. Make a fire again. In other words, the embers, have you ever seen a fire? The embers are really low. You've got you to stoke them back up again. That's the idea. Rekindle. Get the fire blazing hot again. Timothy, and we're going to see because of the context, he was in Ephesus, and Paul had left him there, and it was more difficult to be a Christian than ever before. People were being persecuted. In fact, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, and all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So Timothy, if you're going to be godly, which is a big word in this text, you're going to be persecuted. Persecution went from all kinds of levels, and it was getting worse all the time because this was written in about 67 AD, and this was right before Rome burned, and the Christians were blamed, and people were starting to be torched and all kinds of awful things, and it was happening all around the empire. And that's the context. So he says, don't let the fire inside of you die out. Fan it up. Here's why. Look, fan the flame the gift, you to fan into flame the gift of God. The word gift is charisma, which we get charismatic, but in the Bible it more commonly refers to a work of the Holy Spirit. So spiritual gifts are gifts, charismatic things that the Spirit gives. So here's what he's saying. Here's why you have to fan, because you've been given this Spirit, Timothy, you have the fire of God in you. You have been given the Holy Spirit. How did he get it? Well, it says, Paul says, by the laying on of my hands. Read the book of Acts, and you'll see that Gentiles 
at times had the apostles laid their hand on them when they, after they got saved. And it says, by the laying on of their hands, they received the Holy Spirit. And he said, listen, you were, I put my hands on you. You got saved. You had the Holy Spirit. I gave it to you. He got a calling that was entrusted to you to be a minister. And God's Holy Spirit lives in you. Now watch. That's one spirit. Verse 6 is, This is the spirit God gave you. But then in contrast, and he makes it very clear, verse 7 says, but here's the one God hasn't given you. Verse 7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear. So he gave us a spirit, the one I just told you, but the one he didn't give you is fear. He didn't give you the spirit of being a coward. So here's why cowardly people can't go to heaven, because it contradicts having the Holy Spirit in you. If the Holy Spirit is really in you and working in you, There'll be a fan of fire, a flame going on, and you will have courage and boldness, not because it's easy, but because you will. He says, and you will be able to snuff out any small fires of fear that begin to start in your life. I looked up all the times in the New Testament, the little phrase, the gift of God is used. And you know them. Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4, if you knew the gift of God, the water I was giving to you. And it's almost always in fact, it is every time talking about one shape or form salvation. Acts 8.20 was talking about Simon. Remember, Simon thought that he could buy the gift of God, which was directly in the verses preceding it, the Holy Spirit. You could buy the salvation the Holy Spirit was giving people with money, and he called him cursed. So there's a direct relationship to the gift of God being something the Holy Spirit does. You know the other ones, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the Gift of God is eternal life. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace have you been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. And then you have ours. So every time gift of God is used, it's salvation, but particularly about how the Holy Spirit gives it to you. So here's what he's saying. Timothy, you know what the Spirit God gave you? is the Holy Spirit who saved you and that Holy Spirit that lives in you and that little preposition is all over these two paragraphs. What is in Timothy, it dwelt first in, in Lois, it dwelt in Lu, uh, Eunice, and it's also, I say, it dwells in you. So here's what he's saying. You know how you fight cowardice on the outside? You have God by faith through the Holy Spirit and salvation on the inside. Know this, that every time people are cowards and given to fear, it is not primarily based on just what's happening in their circumstances around them. They have lost the battle on the inside first. So we may come up on circumstances in our lives where we have to take a stand for what we believe about our pro-life stance. We may have to think about what it means to be Christians and the gospel and what's right and wrong in our culture And we have to be willing to stand up. That's why he said to Timothy in the first few verses that you have an unhypocritical faith. In other words, you don't have this spirit ruling you. You have this one. Your faith is real and it's genuine. It's not hypocritical. It's not that you're controlled by fear. You're controlled by faith, he says. That the faith that your mother and your grandmother had, the faith that the Holy Spirit gave you. You're controlled by see, that's the difference. And every time you and I as Christians are tempted to give in to fear, it's because our faith is small. See, cowards have fear inside of them, but conquerors have this, he says in verse seven. They have power, love, and self control inside of them. 
How do I know, Pastor Walker, if I'm cowardly giving into fear? Well, here's how you know, because it's mentioned three times in our text. Because cowardly fear always produces being ashamed. Every single time. All right? It says in chapter 1, verse 8, Therefore, because you don't have the spirit of cowardice, because if you did, you wouldn't be able to do what I'm going to ask you to do. But because you don't, you have the Holy Spirit of power, love, and sound mind, and self-control in you. Therefore, don't be ashamed. See the first one? Don't be ashamed of me, the testimony of the Lord, or me, his prisoner. See, I know it's, it's a shame to come see me in prison. I know it's a risk to come and see me in prison. I know you're putting your life on the line, but don't be ashamed to do it. Don't let cowardice, don't let fear control you. He says the opposite of shame in this case would be what? But instead, contrast, share in the suffering. Three times is this little construction. Verses seven, eight, and nine. Not this, but this. See it in the text? Not this, but this. He says it in verse seven. He says it in verse eight. Not, don't be ashamed, but share in the suffering. Verse nine, not because of works, but because of his own purpose. He does this three times. And what he wants you to know is, I don't want you to do this. I want you to do this. So what is the opposite of not being ashamed? Listen to this. It is a willingness, a willingness to be unafraid in choosing to suffer for Jesus. Choosing to do it. Not because you're looking for it or pursuing it, but when it comes your way, you're not afraid of it. It doesn't control you. I don't know if you know these two ladies. Jen Hatmaker is an author, fairly prominent in the Southern Baptist, but within the last couple years, she has decided that a legitimate form of marriage is between homosexuals. And she thinks that that's equal to or just is on a par with the way that God designed marriage. And so there are people in the Christian community, people that we looked up to, have turned turned around. Why? Because they want to be accepted. They want to be able to sell books. They want to be able to, they want to accommodate people. Lauren Daigle, who has a beautiful voice and sings some pretty good songs, very popular singer, was asked less than a year, or maybe a little over a year ago, how do you feel about homosexuality? Is it a sin? Here's what she said. I can't honestly answer that. I have too many people I love that are homosexual. I can't say one way or the other. I'm not God. She goes, that's my go-to answer when I'm asked. My go-to answer is, I just love too many people to say they're doing something wrong. You know what that means? She loves people more than God. You know what the Bible says? That's cowardice. Because she wants to be accepted by people. She wants to fit in. She doesn't want anyone to think less of her. See, coward is, second definition, different dictionary, afraid to show allegiance when it costs something. A coward runs away when the enemy shows up. Did you watch the uh, Lord of the Rings or Hobbit movies or read the books? In the third one in the Hobbit series, um, there's a guy in it, his name is Alfred, and I didn't know his last name until I looked it up. <laughs> Alfred Lickspittle. Now, that's bad enough, right? Kind of gives you an idea what kind of guy he might be. He was assistant to the king at Lake Town where the dragon came in and burned it all up. But he was kind of a, I hate to say it, Weasley, kind of gross kind of guy, really 
Mr. Chicken pretty much in the end. Even one time when they were in battle, he dressed up like a woman so that he could hide out with the women and be protected instead of having to fight the battle with the men. I mean, it's just who he was. He is the epitome. If you look at, if you watch the movie, he's the epitome of a coward. He really is. The opposite of that, real life person. Have you ever heard of Kelvin Cochran? Mr. Cochran was a firefighter for over 30 years. He was the fire chief in Atlanta from 1999 to 2008. 2009, he was so well-respected that he was approached by the president to be the U.S. fire administrator for the entire United States. Uh, After just being there for a short time, I think one year in that position, the city of Atlanta begged him, I mean, that's the word in the, in the article, begged him to come back to be the fire commissioner for Atlanta, where he, his hometown was, and he agreed to go back. Not having been back there very long, he is a Christian, he is a, a very solid deacon, member of Elizabeth Baptist Church. He wrote a book on marriage, and in the book he said that this is God's design for marriage, and this is not. Um, well, there are a number of groups that found out that he did it, and when they reported him, the city that begged him to come back suspended him for 30 days for writing a marriage book. And so they had a, a, a brief trial about it, and after the trial was over, they fired him over it. He stood up for Christ and, and didn't back down from his position, and he did it very humbly and loving way. They eventually had a court case over it, and he won the court case He didn't take the job back, but they had to pay him money. But you read his testimony and what happened to him and and the death threats and everything he got. The guy was anything but a coward. But that's what true faith, when the Holy Spirit is in you, produces. It doesn't produce a spirit of fear. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of spirit of power, love, and of self-control. So what's on the inside will control what's on the outside. Let me give you these last three things. Let's do them one at a time and we'll be done. Power, it's the word we get dynamite from. It's used, again, look at, if you want to know what kind of power he's talking about, look one verse down. He says, God's not given a spirit of fear, but of power. Look at verse eight. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor if he is prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel. How do you do that? By the power of God. So what kind of power does the Holy Spirit give you? Now, this is, get this, it's very crucial. The kind of power God gives is not the power to keep you out of fearful circumstances. That's not the power. God is not keeping you out of things that might get you in trouble or the consequences might involve suffering or loss or choices that are very difficult to make. He's not, that's not the power that God's doing. The power is, is that when you're in those things, he enables you to not be a coward. That's the kind of power it is. It's not the power to forego difficult circumstances. It's the power to face difficult circumstances, i.e. David. (coughs) David had power, God's power, not to have him kept from being there on the day Goliath was there, but the power to say when everyone else was a coward, I'll stand up to this guy even though nobody thinks I have a chance. That's the power of God. It's the same power that Daniel had. Daniel was in the lion's den and he, no one thought he could survive being thrown in there. 
But God gave him the power. That power was not to keep him out of the lion's den, but was to keep him in the lion's den. We could talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It didn't keep him out of the fiery furnace, but God gave him the ability to say, and we're not cowards, we're not afraid of it. We won't be controlled by the fear of the fire because we have a fear of God. You could talk about <coughs> Esther, the disciples, Ananias when he had to go see Paul when he first got saved, the apostle Paul himself. I mean, endless stories of people who shared in suffering and the reason that they were able to make those choices was because the Holy Spirit was producing power in their lives. See, if you think that God in these days to come is going to give you power so that you'll never have trouble at school, you'll never have trouble at your job, or you'll never have trouble in our communities, you're wrong. That's not the power he's going to give you. The power of God is for the sake of suffering, if it need be, for the gospel. It's the gospel that he gives power to further, not your own agenda. Secondly, he says, not just power, but love. <coughs> love is in verse 7. What kind of love? Verse 13 gives us a little hint. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me, Paul says to Timothy, in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So what kind of love is it? Well, it's modeled for us by Paul and Jesus both. It's the kind of investing love, a self-sacrificial love, a love that gives of itself. Watch, real quickly. It's in complete contrast and comparison in this book to the love that marks people in the world who don't have the ability to stop being a coward. Sometime on your own, read 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 4. Here's the kind of love that marks people who are unbelievers. I'm going to read them all. Self-lovers, money lovers, pleasure lovers, and here's what they're not. Not good lovers or God lovers. You see the five? All of it has the word love in it. Not self, they're self-lovers, money lovers, pleasure lovers, not good lovers, not God lovers. See, one thing that marks a person who is a conqueror and courageous, that's not a coward, is love. Do you know that people who are cowardice are completely deficient of love? Do you know what I mean? Because they can't love anyone else, including their wife sometimes, or their own children, or things that really matter. They don't love it enough to stand up for it because they have a problem with self-love to the degree that they can't really love anyone or anything else is much in comparison. So they give into it and they become cowards and they fear because the number one love they have in their life is not God and others, others, it's themselves. It's themselves. So really one of the most expressive forms of selfishness is being a coward. It's being fearful. Today we might say safety lovers, people who would never take a risk for Christ, TV lovers, Internet lovers, video games lovers, autonomy lovers. See, it's the sign of a coward, sign of someone who's an unbeliever is a disordered love. The last one, power, love, and self-control. And that's what cowards don't have. Cowards don't have self-control. They are fear-driven, not faith-driven. They are lust-driven, not love-driven. They are power-to-succeed-driven, not power-to-suffer-driven. That's the kind of people that they are. And Paul said that this cowardice was so widespread. Listen to this, just so you don't think that you're above this. And I'll conclude with this. Chapter 1 and verse 15 says, You are aware, Timothy, that all, listen to this, see the all? Remember at the end of the book, all of them deserted me. 
even my closest friends. But look, all the churches I've supported and the people I've won and the, and the people who have come to Christ, all the who are in Asia turned away from me. And it means to turn back, to not say, I don't even know you. And when they found out that they, he was a prisoner, they, they turned their back on him. They didn't want to associate with him. They didn't even want to recognize that they knew him. That sounds like Peter, doesn't it, when it came to Jesus? See, that's, that's how rampant it is. And it isn't until something goes wrong, something is missing, some great tragedy takes place. It isn't until we're put in circumstances of great difficulty that we realize where our true allegiance is. And what Paul says is they turned away from me. And now, let me close. And he names them. He says, and of these kind of people is Philegius and Hermogenes. And you know why he does that? Because he wants, he characterizes it by contrasting them with Onesimus. And here's what he says of Onesimus. This was the man who was not, listen to this, not ashamed of my chains. See, you know why these two guys by name left? They were cowards. You know why? They didn't want to, so, you know why people in Asia turned away from Paul? Because he was a prisoner and a criminal and it was shameful and they were too afraid to do it. He says, but this one guy in contrast, he didn't. When I had chains, he wasn't ashamed of me. That's why a shame is in 1.8, Three times in this chapter, Paul says, he was not ashamed. I was not ashamed, Timothy. You shouldn't be ashamed. And we need to get this down now. Can I tell you? Forewarning, we need to get it down in our, our lives now. We need to teach our children. We're not ashamed of what we believe. We're not ashamed. We don't have to put it in people's face. We're not better than them. We're not superior. And we're certainly not arrogant as we hold our views. But let me tell you this. We're not ashamed of it either. Not ashamed of it. Jesus says it is a lethal thing to be a coward. And it's an oxymoron to put the word with Christian. That's not who our Savior is, and that's not who we should be. And the question the text has to be for all of us is, which one are you, conqueror or coward? Let's pray. Father, help us. It's going to be, if it's not already, a very important issue in our culture for American Christians. Will we live out by faith the victory of Jesus at any cost, or will we turn back and be cowards. Oh Lord, give us strength. Give us grace. May we fear you and never fear anything else. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.